Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Call the confession today is Proverbs 28, verse 11. A rich man is wise in his own eyes, but a poor man who has understanding will find him out. The rich man in this short proverb is a fool. He thinks he is wise by the false value system he puts on wealth. And the man of understanding, regardless of his economic status, can dissect and condemn a rich, arrogant fool. Notice that this is not a statement that the wealthy are clueless or don't know anything, but it is a statement that understanding beats conceit. A number of translations of this verse carry the idea that the man with understanding is able to see through and to penetrate. The rich man is puffed up and vain and proud in his own eyes, and a poor man, provided he has understanding, sees right through the sham or charade of the foolish. God dispenses all his gifts. Sometimes the gifts are given in different ways. Sometimes he gives wisdom. Sometimes he gives wealth. And with understanding comes wisdom. And it's easy to say which one of these is the better gift for which we should earnestly long for. And this reminds us of our need to confess our sins. Christ will kneel where you are. Father in heaven, we pray you would bless our time in your word this morning. We thank you for Job and for his example, and mostly for your faithfulness to him. We thank you that even when saving faith has its moments of weakness, that you remain faithful, and that you remain faithful to your character and your promises. And because of that, we can have hope even in the midst of of the difficult times. Come and minister to each one here this morning, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever found yourself involved in an exercise in futility? Some years ago I was in that position. Our house in Livonia became a home to carpenter ants. At first they were merely a nuisance, but as the population continued to grow, things got pretty bad. I tried praying them away, but they must not have been Presbyterian ants. (laughs) The next step was to call an exterminator, and for $200, he agreed to come out. Now, this exterminator took his job very seriously. We had to take everything out of every cupboard and closet, and when he came, he drilled holes in all of our doors, and then he fumigated them. What I was not prepared for, though, was the set of instructions that he left behind. I was supposed to keep a tally of every ant I saw, alive or dead, in the weeks ahead. I was to write down the exact location and the count of every ant in the house from that day on. The exterminator promised that two visits maximum would eliminate the ants. 
I thought I can do anything for two weeks, maybe three weeks. I enlisted my four kids to help, and each day we went on ant patrols, flashlights in hand, and our little tally sheets. Every few days, I phoned in the information, and the exterminator tried to use his detective skills to find the nest of the ants. Four visits later, he still had not accomplished the task, and we still had the carpenter ants. Lots of them. And as we made the rounds each day, I found myself asking, why am I doing this? Are there really other adults in Michigan doing this every day? And why is this not working? Will the one-year warranty that comes with the $200 fee lapse before the ants are truly eliminated? Job was involved in an apparent exercise in futility. But the stakes were much higher. And if the book of Job teaches us anything, it's that how you and I respond to life's trials and tragedies and hardships matters to God. And it matters to Satan. Well, let's remind ourselves a little bit about Job. He was a real person in history. Several other books of the Bible make mention of him. And he lived in a time period when patriarchal practices were being observed. And so as head of his house, Job acted as priest, and he made regular burnt offerings to purify his children and himself. This all took place before Moses received the specific commandments of the covenant given at Mount Sinai. Many believe that the book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible. So that means that the Bible had not been written yet. Job did not have Psalm 23 or Romans 8 to encourage him. So what kind of man was Job? Chapter 1 and verse 3 describes him as the greatest man among the people of the East. Chapter 29 tells us that he was great in terms of wealth, character, and influence. Job was married and had seven sons. And although they were grown up and living in their own houses, Job was still concerned for them as a father. He had this custom of sacrificing burnt offerings for them. Verse 5 tells us the purpose. He says, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. In other words, he was concerned about the condition of their hearts and their personal relationship with God. Now, the first chapter of the book of Job lets us in on a conversation taking place between Satan and God. God points out Job as an exemplary believer, saying in verse 8, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright a man who fears God and shuns evil. The word for blameless does not mean that he was sinlessly perfect. Throughout the book, Job mentions he confesses his sins before God. The word actually means whole or complete, balanced and having integrity. It meant simply that Job had walked with the Lord a long time and he had a close relationship with him. He had a wholehearted commitment to God and to his commandments. We're told that he shunned evil. He kept away from it. So Satan replies in verse 9, does, God fear, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. What Satan is saying here is that 
Job only obeys the Lord because he has so abundantly blessed him. Satan says, Job views you as the big Santa Claus. But just take away some of those blessings and his true colors will show. You'll see his loyalty and his obedience vanish. So, again, still in chapter 1, verse 12, the Lord says to Satan, Very well, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. That's pretty sobering, isn't it? To say, everything he has is in your hands, Satan, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. The one consolation there is that God's permission is also God's command. He says you can go so far, but there's a line you can't cross. So Satan goes out in chapter 1 and strikes Job with a series of events that plunged him into darkness for several months. I want to read verses 13 to 19 of chapter 1 quickly so you get a sense of the speed of the events. This is verse 13. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. He collapsed on them and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. How quickly did all this happen? Probably in just about the amount of time it took to read it. Job's livestock, his livelihood, his servants, his children, all destroyed. Then in chapter 2, Job is afflicted with painful sores from head to foot. He loses his health. He ends up out on the garbage heap trying to make sense out of all that's happened so quickly. Remember at the beginning of chapter 2 that uh, Satan comes again and, and God says, okay, you can put your hand on Job himself, but you cannot take his life. And so that's what happens. So he finds himself out on the garbage heap trying to make sense out of all that's happened so quickly. And the next 30 chapters of the book find him in the depths of despair. And yet the entire time he looks for God. He pursues God and he struggles with God. And finally, he meets with God in chapter 38. And that's our text from today. So there is great discussion as to what the disease was that Job actually contracted. Right? From the description given here, the best guess is that Job was afflicted with elephantiasis, a disease where tremendous amounts of fluid collect in the body, and the disease gets its name from the limbs becoming lumps without joints, like the legs of an elephant. The arms and the legs swell, sometimes to twice their original size. The skin becomes tight, 
and bursts and fluid oozes out. And the stench from the oozing and the fact that it's highly contagious causes people to stay away. People still contract elephantiasis even today. In Deuteronomy 28, we find a description of the same disease, and it's labeled as terminal. Back in Job's time, a person was forced to leave his house to prevent the spread of the disease. So Job ends up on the garbage heap outside the town, hoping the smell of garbage will overpower the stench of his infection. Here in our text, verse 8, Job takes pieces of broken pottery and scrapes himself to try to relieve the itching. So although we don't know all the details of the disease, let's not underestimate the experience that Job was going through, which probably lasted several months. Chapter 7, verse 3, Job says, I am allotted months of vanity. You know, when sudden hardship hits, we can rise to the occasion, provided the occasion isn't very long. But there's an erosion of spirit when week follows week and hope seems to be sagging away. The body becoming weaker, no hope for relief. And so as we return to chapter 2, verse 9, we read, His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Now, it's easy for us to look back on Mrs. Job and belittle her and to say, what a terrible wife. I think if I were there, I would certainly have given better advice than that. But we need to look at Mrs. Job with some kindness. After all, Job probably couldn't have raised all ten children blamelessly without a terrific wife. So let's consider first the case for Mrs. Job. She's lived with this man for many years. And their children have grown up and married, and she knows her husband. Her question reveals that, because she says, are you still holding on to your integrity? By that she means you've been a good man all your life. I know you, I've lived with you. But now the only advice I have for you is to curse God and die. Job responds by saying to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. So it doesn't sound like Mrs. Job always talked that way. Job doesn't say, there you go again. No, he says, you're talking the way the other women talk, the foolish women. That's not your usual way. You've fallen into a trap. And he goes on to say, shall we not accept from God, uh, I didn't say that right, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Well, let's try to get inside of Mrs. Job's thought process a bit. Why has she said what she said? And what can we learn from it? As we analyze her thinking, it goes something like this. If God is just, he must bless a good man. But Job is not blessed. Therefore, either Job is a sinner or God is unjust. I know my husband, and Job is not a sinner. Therefore, God is unjust and unworthy of worship. And since death is approaching, Job might as well forsake God and die. Mrs. Job knows the kind of man that her husband is. She knows the kind of language used by God to describe him, that he was blameless and upright. 
So he's not the kind of man that merits this particular kind of punishment. It's just not adding up in her mind. And she's got good reasons to think this way. In terms of what she knows and in terms of what she believes, she's absolutely right. Her logic is perfect. Well, if she's absolutely right, then how can she be wrong? And here's the error in her thinking. Mrs. Job's judgment is based on insufficient information. She does not know what happened in the first chapter. She doesn't know what happened in the first verses of chapter 2. The whole challenge that takes place there between God and Satan. Well, then how can Mrs. Job be blamed for what she does not know? And I think we need to realize that she's not blamed for what she doesn't know. She's blamed for drawing conclusions with insufficient information. And if there's one sin being committed by you and me today, it's this one. On the basis of insufficient evidence, we often come to draw false conclusions and then to go on to make dogmatic statements. And so Job's wife says to him, Job, I know the kind of man that you are, and really you ought to curse God and die. If only she had known, but she didn't know. And you know, you and I, there are lots of things that we don't know either. That's why James says we're to be slow to speak. That's why the book of Ecclesiastes says, let your words be few. It's okay at times to say, I don't know. In a scholarly sense, I think the professors that I respected the most were the ones who sometimes answered questions by saying, I don't know. It's also true in parenting, isn't it? There are times when it's best to respond if our honest answer is, I don't know, to say that to our children. I don't know. There are some things that I do not know. We need to remember Deuteronomy 29.29 that says the secret things belong to the Lord. And there are lots of them. Some things have been revealed by God and they are for us and they are for our children, Moses says. But we're not to go filling in the blanks. Because when you and I fill in the blanks that God has deliberately withheld, then we're substituting our word for the word of God. And that is precisely Mrs. Job's problem. And the truth we want to see here is that faith, saving faith, rests in the omniscience of God. Let me say that again. Saving faith rests in the omniscience of God. At times we need to say, I don't know. But God does know. The Bible says faith is being certain of what we do not see. And it presumes that there are areas of life that we will never fully understand. Actually, we live every day trusting in things we don't totally understand or grasp, and we do fine with it. You know, if I give a, a glass of water to my two-year-old granddaughter, she understands a certain amount of knowledge about that glass of water. But if I hand that same glass of water to a middle schooler and they go to drink it, their understanding of that glass of water is more advanced. Then I give it to an adult. And then what happens if I give that same glass of water to a chemist? He or she may, or will probably understand on a whole different level. 
All these people may have different understanding, different levels of understanding about the nature of water, and yet they all enjoy the benefit of that water when they drink it. Likewise, there are some elements of the spiritual world that we will never totally understand. Some things will remain a mystery until the Lord returns. And we should never be afraid to say, I don't know, if in fact we don't. Especially when someone is suffering. The question is usually why. And in most cases of suffering, nobody knows why. We may have some possibilities to consider. And yet so often, in error, we rush in with our dogmatic statements. In spite of the clarity of God's word, though, parts of life still remain a puzzle. There's all kinds of things that happen that you and I cannot explain. Things that we don't understand at all. And that just simply means that we understand that the world is in the hands of a God who knows everything. Who's all-powerful, compassionate, just. Who is ruling this world in complete sovereignty. And who is all-good and all-loving. So that when tragedy or hardship strikes... It's never because God doesn't care or doesn't love us. And none of it ever takes him by surprise. None of it occurs because God isn't strong enough to stand up to it. And somehow, although things don't necessarily add up in our understanding, we have to trust that it meets in his understanding. And we can't make up reasons when God hasn't given us reasons. Well, let's apply this directly to our lives today. When do you and I commit the sin of Mrs. Job? First of all, when we say that only seeing is believing. There are lots of things we have to believe that we cannot see. Mrs. Job saw a good man, a terrible catastrophe happening to him, and she saw no hope. And so it made sense to her to say, curse God and die. But seeing is not believing. She's like the disciple Thomas who said, yes, I will believe. Remember after Jesus was resurrected? Thomas hadn't seen him, and yet he said, I believe, but first let me see, let me touch. And Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. The bottom line is there's a whole vast area of reality which you and I cannot perceive or understand. And when you insist that you'll only believe in that which you can perceive, can understand, then you're making your perception and your reasoning and your understanding the final authority. A second way we commit the sin of Mrs. Job is when we act authoritative in the midst of our ignorance. There's a man by the name of Nathaniel in the first chapter of John's Gospel. His brother Philip came to him and he said, we have seen Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel said, well, he can't be the Messiah. Nazareth. No, the Messiah has to come out of Bethlehem. There's no other way. That's what the scriptures tell us. Philip was smart. He didn't try and reason with his brother. He simply said, come and see. I'll let you talk to him. And Nathaniel was right. According to Old Testament prophecy, the Messiah was to come out of Bethlehem but he could also be Jesus of Nazareth. And he was. Sometimes we have it all laid out the way it's got to be. 
And we say, okay, God, you have to work in this set of parameters, in this almost like a straitjacket we're trying to put on. And you can't work in any other way. And you have to do it my way. And so in ignorance, we set ourselves up as the final authority even over God. It's like a young child that prays for the Lord to make tomorrow a sunny day so that he or she can go swimming or play outside. Self-centered in an innocent and naive way, but oblivious to the fact that the farmers may need the rain. Right? If you have never read the original biography of Amy Carmichael's life, uh, the missionary uh, to India, I would certainly commend that to you. She recalls a similar situation when she was a young child. She had brown eyes. Her mother had blue eyes. And she wanted blue eyes like her mother's. And she knew as a young child that if she prayed, that Jesus would answer her prayer. And so before bedtime, she prayed that God would give her blue eyes. And she went to bed and she woke up in the morning and she ran and looked in the mirror and her eyes were still brown. She was disappointed. And she said to her mother, I'm never going to pray again because God didn't answer my prayer. Jesus didn't answer. And her mother said, Jesus answered. He said, no. Isn't no an answer? Years later, as that missionary in India, Amy Carmichael began rescuing young girls from the temples where they were being raised to become temple prostitutes. By dyeing her skin with tea bags, she was able to pass for an Indian woman and gain access into the temples. And it was only then that she realized the significance of the brown eyes that God had given to her. If they had been blue like her mother's, she would not have been able to go into the temples. Yet, with those brown eyes, hundreds of children were rescued each year. A third way we commit the sin of Mrs. Job is by discarding the things or people when we can't see their usefulness or purpose. Discarding things or people when we can't see their usefulness or purpose. Job's wife said, here's my husband, and I can't see any purpose to him being out on the garbage heap. Makes no sense to me. So Job, why don't you just die? Was there a purpose for Job being out there on the dung heap? Absolutely. But you and I have read chapters one and two. Mrs. Job can't see it. And she says, well, if I can't see the purpose in it, then it doesn't have a purpose. Isn't that why so many people today believe in abortion and euthanasia? I can't see any purpose for this child's life. I can't see any purpose for anyone getting this old. It's the whole quality of life argument. I can't see any point to it. Therefore, there is no point. This time of year, we see signs where you can go to uh, life-size mazes in the local cornfields, right? Have have any of you ever gone through a maze in a cornfield? Or maybe you've been over in Europe where they have the the hedges that make the, the, the mazes and you can go through them. It's not easy to get from one end to the other. And yet, if you could somehow have an aerial view from above... It would be a cakewalk. You know, when it comes to making sense of a difficult situation in our lives, 
Sometimes we don't have the right perspective. We can't see any purpose to the suffering we're going through, but that's because we're finite and limited. Yet God sees our lives from an eternal, infinite perspective, and he sees purpose in our trials even when we cannot. Isn't that the hardest place to be at when we can't see a purpose to to either our own suffering or the suffering of someone dear to us. We have to trust. God's word says this God is our God and he will be our guide even to the end. There's a woman in our congregation named Alice who has seven foster care children. And uh, I met her um, because I was doing the funeral of one of them who had had grown to adulthood. And, And all seven of her foster children uh, were uh, children with severe multiple needs. And it, it meant a lot of hard work for her. A lot of hard work over several decades. Our society would say that these children don't give back much in return for all that they demand of others. But Alice said that through her son who had passed away and her other children, she's learned invaluable lessons about patience and contentment and trust and grace. Romans 5.3 says, We rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. The problem is that you and I often want the diploma without going through the school of suffering. It's human nature, right? My favorite poster I have at home is of a, a man totally out of shape. He's, he's sitting on a, on a, on a big uh, keg and it simply says, no pain, no pain. You know, that's just human nature. We, we run from suffering. We, we run from pain. I understand that. And yet trusting God and loving him and not becoming bitter requires tremendous patience and long-suffering. But we have to remember God is never absent in our hard place. We're never alone. And there is a purpose to our suffering. He is making us more and more into his image. Even Job said that at the end of that whole process, he would come forth as gold that had been purified through the fire of affliction. Fourth, we commit the sin of Mrs. Job when we believe that God exists only to make us happy. Job, you're not happy? You might as well die. Because after all, the chief end of man is to be happy, stress-free. That false thinking reduces God to a genie whose main function is to grant her every whim. But you know, I know because we've said it here on one of the Sundays when I was here, our Westminster standards through the questions of the catechism says, what is the chief end of man? You remember it, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We're to glorify Him, to enjoy Him, not our circumstances. And when we're in the hard place, we're to embrace it rather than run from it and to ask God to accomplish His purposes through us. Again, the main lesson that Mrs. Job teaches us is that faith, saving faith, must rest on the omniscience of God. Because God has deliberately given us only a partial revelation. He has said, I have reserved secrets to myself 
and I don't have to reveal them to anyone, not even to Job. Did you know that God never told Job why all of that devastation had come upon him? You can't open up the book of Job and find God giving the explanation to him. It would have been so easy for God to come down to the garbage heap and say, here's what happened, here's the scenes from chapters 1 and chapter 2, and you've been called up to the front ranks to demonstrate your faith and your trust in me, even in the midst of being struck down. And you know, if he had simply said that to Job, I truly believe that Job would have responded by saying, okay, let the boils come. I'll scratch a little bit longer. I'll hang in there a few more months because there's a point to it. And I see the point. But the Lord did not do that because we have to believe there's a point to it even if we don't see the point. And that was Mrs. Job's mistake. She was not an evil person. She loved her husband. And it was eating her up that he had to suffer as he did. But her faith was based only on what she saw. And she saw a person trapped by the same kind of thinking that often traps you and me. When we think that we have to have all the answers. Or when we think that we do have all the answers. And we make authoritative judgments rather than trusting in God's omniscience. Or we opt out of the refining process and the opportunity to glorify God. So I encourage you, let's be like Job and trust God in the midst of our hard times. Let's take God at his word and believe that he will never leave us, he will never forsake us. That like Job, God will bring us through our trials as purified gold. Let's struggle and pursue the Lord, especially when he seems far away, as Job did. And finally, let's rest in his omniscience, trusting that whatever doesn't meet in our understanding adds up in his. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of Job, that he was willing to rest in what he didn't know and trust that it added up in your understanding. Forgive us for those times when we're wanting only to believe in that which we can see. Because so often you call us to walk by faith, not by sight. Help us to learn from his example. Help us to remain humble and not set ourselves up in our understanding and our perception as the final authority, but instead to trust in you, that we too may glorify you when we are suddenly called up to the front lines and asked to love and trust you in the midst of the difficult time. In Jesus' name. of our Savior from Matthew 18, verses 3 through 4. Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It may be a result of the sheer number of kids I have, 
But it has struck me more in recent months the seemingly endless needs that little children have. The two that are most prominent to me, and to many of you, I believe, are their need for nourishment and for cleaning. When it comes to feeding your children, there is never a day off. You're unlikely to ever hear your four-year-old say, You know, Mom, I'm just not hungry today. Maybe I'll eat tomorrow. No, instead, I'm hungry is often the first words out of their mouths when they wake in the morning, or sometimes even a half hour after dinner. Kids are growing, and therefore they need good and consistent nourishment. Likewise, kids are always getting dirty. Whether it's from playing outside, coloring a picture, or from eating a snack, there's a perpetual need for face wiping, hand washing, showers and baths, and even the laundry. A child's need to be fed and washed by their parents, as long as they are a child, will be unceasing. Here in Matthew, we find that Jesus calls us to be like children, not in an immature sense, but in the sense of humility and dependency. In humbling ourselves, we recognize that we are utterly dependent on our Heavenly Father. Like the bellies of our children, our souls are always in need of filling. We are in constant need of heavenly nourishment. And like our children, there is not a day that goes by in which we don't get dirty. We are in constant need of heavenly cleansing. But like our children, we cannot nourish ourselves, nor can we adequately wash ourselves. The Father knows this, and here at this table is evidence of his knowledge of our need and his provision for it. Here is bread, the body of Christ, true food for our famished souls. Here is wine, Jesus' blood, full cleansing for our grimy souls. And as long as we are here on this earth, we will never stop needing these provisions from our Father. So come, dear children, come to this table, be fed and be washed. Christ's body broken for us. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.